From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is facing controversy after reports he failed to properly disclose gifts. What does the law say about outside income for the high court? And videos on social media exposed how certain Kias and Hyundais are vulnerable to theft. Now, 17 state attorneys general say the cars should be recalled. We're seeing in some cities doubling, tripling of thefts of these specific vehicles. Plus, Caroline Rose's new album gets deeply personal. It's Sunday, May 7th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Another mass shooting in Texas. Police say a gunman killed eight people and wounded seven others, three critically, at an outlet mall in the Dallas area before he was killed by police. The shooting happened at premium outlets in Allen, Texas, and Cole Korchek was there with his family. Out of nowhere, I heard about like 10 pops go off, and I look at the customer next to me, I was, I was like, was that gunshots? And he was like, no, it's probably just construction or something. And then, like, heard 10, 15 more shots go off. The Allen Police Department says an officer was in the area on an unrelated call when he heard the shots and engaged the suspect. Last weekend, a man fatally shot five people in Cleveland, Texas, after a neighbor asked him to stop firing his weapon while a baby slept. The California Reparations Task Force has approved its recommendations for the nation's first statewide reparations plan for descendants of American slavery. Annalise Finney of member station KQED says the final day of edits was contentious. The nine-member body has been working on its plan for two years. At yesterday's meeting in Oakland, deliberations spiraled into bitter disagreements over how to phrase who exactly would be eligible. Congresswoman Barbara Lee urged the task force to stay focused. We must repair this damage. We must repair it. The group finally approved its plan, which includes a method to calculate money denied to black residents by racist policies, plans for a new state agency to manage that repayment, an official apology, and dozens of proposed policy changes to stop discrimination moving forward. For NPR News, I'm Annalise Finney in Oakland. Overseas, Ukraine says it used a newly acquired U.S. Patriot missile battery to shoot down a Russian hypersonic weapon over the capital of Kiev uh, last week. NPR Scott Newman has more. In attacks on Ukraine in recent months, Russia has increasingly employed one of its latest high-tech missiles, the Kenzel, or Dagger. Traveling at up to 10 times the speed of sound, the missile had proved nearly impossible to intercept. But Ukraine's Air Force, armed with U.S.-supplied Patriot missiles that arrived last month, says it destroyed a Kenzel during a Russian strike on Kyiv earlier this week. It's thought to be the first time Ukraine has managed to intercept a Russian hypersonic missile. In October, the U.S. agreed to supply Patriots to Ukraine to aid in defending its skies against the Kremlin's air and missile attacks. Scott Newman, NPR News. The head of the United Nations Nuclear Watchdog Agency expressing worries about the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant, the Zaporizhia plant in Ukraine. Rafael Grossi says ongoing attacks in the area is making the situation increasingly unpredictable and potentially dangerous. He issued his warning after Russia began evacuations in the area. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A strike is looking likely for school bus drivers in Framingham, Marlboro, and Westboro 
tomorrow. The Boston Globe reports that a bargaining round yesterday failed to yield a new contract for the unionized drivers. The city of Framingham released a statement saying a vote to renew the busing contract would expire if the strike happens Monday. The drivers are asking for fair wages, health care, and retirement benefits. Each district has devised a contingency plan to get students to school. A Worcester nonprofit is suspending its programs tomorrow after it placed its two top executives on leave. Mass Live reports that Girls Inc. says employees raised questions about workplace equity, and that led to the launch of an external investigation. Girls Inc. is continuing to pay employees during the suspension. The more-than-century-old organization helps girls from lower-income families succeed. A concert this afternoon celebrates the 20th anniversary of the Boston Women's Memorial on the Comav Mall in the Back Bay. The sculptures commemorate Phyllis Wheatley, Abigail Adams, and Lucy Stone. Three original compositions will debut. They were commissioned by Amelia LeClaire, the director of Capella Clausura. LeClaire says... The three composers of color are interpreting the words engraved on the pedestals of the statues. I thought it was important to lift up a diverse cohort of young women to show how these 100-year-old plus words are still resonating for every, every woman and everyone. The Women's Memorial honors the poet Phyllis Wheatley, who was enslaved by a Boston merchant. Abigail Adams, an advocate for women's rights and opponent of slavery, who was the wife of President John Adams, and Lucy Stone, an abolitionist and suffragist. On the MBTA, keep in mind shuttle buses are replacing red line service between Park Street and JFK UMass today. This accommodates crews doing track and tie work in the effort to reduce the number of slow zones along the route. This afternoon in Philadelphia, it's game four in the Celtics playoff series against the 76ers. The Celtics are up two games to one. The Red Sox have an eight-game winning streak. This afternoon, the Sox go for the sweep against the Phillies in Philadelphia. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the mid-70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Over just the past three weeks, nearly 100,000 Sudanese people have fled the fighting in their country. They've crossed land borders into neighboring African countries like Egypt, which has received by far the biggest number of Sudanese. And that's where NPR's Aya Batrawi is. She joins us now from the Egyptian city of Aswan, close to Sudan's border. Hi, Aya. Hi, Aisha. So you've been all around this story, and I mean that literally. You've been in Sudan, where you saw the evacuation of thousands of foreigners, including Americans, also Saudi Arabia, just across the Red Sea, now Egypt. Tell us what it's like there. Yeah, so unlike the evacuees from Sudan who carry foreign passports and have the support of their countries ready to welcome them when they get off these ships from Sudan to Saudi Arabia and are ready to go back home, the people coming to Egypt from Sudan are largely left on their own. And that journey starts in Sudan as they try to make their way into Egypt. It costs thousands of dollars to get buses to try and get to the border. And when they get to the border, there are very few facilities available to these families, not even enough bathrooms, medical facilities, places to sleep. And then when they get to Egypt, they face a whole new set of challenges because the country simply isn't prepared to deal with this influx of Sudanese. So far, already more than 50,000 Sudanese have come here just since mid-April. 
And Egypt is grappling with its own economic crisis. The food inflation here is very high and the currency has lost half its value in just the last year. So you already have 4 million Sudanese living in Egypt and only a fraction of those are officially registered as UN refugees. So the most of the Sudanese that are coming here are actually coming here on tourist visas that will probably just continuously be extended. So how are these tens of thousands of Sudanese coping when they get to Egypt? So I met a Sudanese woman just before coming to Aswan who had arrived to Egypt about a week after the fighting broke out in Sudan. Shiza Brahima told me she had to sell some of her gold to make the week-long journey across the border into Egypt, sleeping outside next to buses and on the side of the road. And she had to do all of that with a two-week-old baby as she tried to recover from labor. Um, her baby didn't even have a passport yet, but Egyptian border guards did let the family through. And I met her in a rented apartment in Cairo that she's sharing with some other Sudanese evacuees. And here's what she said. We don't know for how many days, months, is are we going to survive? And also we have the cash problems. And still the, the baby needed increasing them. So uh, because I have stuck of, I mean, you know, pampers and diapers and, and now all they run. This is what I could bring it from home. So Sheza Brema had been working with the UN in Sudan before this with refugees on trauma counseling. And now she's telling me she has to use that trauma counseling on herself and her family because she never thought she'd be in this position. But there's also schools in Egypt and here in Aswan that have turned into shelters for Sudanese. But this isn't a government initiative. This is just people, citizens, private citizens, whether they're Sudanese or Egyptian, just offering space and support to Sudanese who are now here. So what's Egypt saying about how long it will keep its borders open like this, given, you know, like you said, it's reeling from its own economic crisis and struggling to feed millions of poor Egyptians? So Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah Hassisi, has described the Sudanese citizens that are in Egypt as guests and not refugees. But the reality is Cairo is probably going to seek international aid and support to continue doing this because it faces billions of dollars in unpaid loans and debt overseas. So this could be an opportunity for Cairo to get more financial support. But Egypt is also deeply concerned about the situation across its border in Sudan. And Egypt wants to see a friendly government in power, and that's the military that's now fighting the paramilitary forces. With neighboring countries affected like this, what can you tell us about international efforts to try and bring this conflict to an end? So this weekend, we have seen the first real attempt at getting the warring sides to talk. And this is a U.S.-Saudi backed effort that started in Saudi Arabia yesterday. But to give you an idea of just how far off the two sides are from any ceasefire, Washington and Riyadh have described these as pre-negotiation talks. And the Sudanese factions that are meeting in Saudi Arabia said they're only going to discuss a humanitarian truce, several of which have already been broken in past weeks and not ready to negotiate an end to the war. That's NPR's Aya Batrawi in Aswan. Aya, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. The revelations keep coming about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Last Thursday, ProPublica reported that Thomas received and failed to disclose a gift from a GOP megadonor. The report says billionaire Harlan Crow paid the private school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew, tuition that runs more than $6,000 a month. ProPublica has reported before about Crow's other gifts to Thomas over the years, including luxury vacations and real estate. 
To better understand the rules surrounding income and gifts to Supreme Court justices, we're joined by Gabe Roth. He's executive director of the nonprofit group Fix the Court. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Aisha. So uh, let's start with Justice Thomas and the tuition gift. Is this sort of gift allowed for Supreme Court justices? So it is allowed, but what's not allowed is the lack of reporting. So defenders of Thomas say that because this gift was to his grandnephew and his grandnephew was not technically his dependent child as it's defined in federal law, that it didn't need to be reported all those years ago. Fact of the matter is that this was a gift to Thomas, and there is a section of your financial disclosure report, and you're supposed to include any gifts that you receive from any source that's greater than around $400. And obviously, about $100,000 worth of tuition is more than $400, so it needed to be reported in the annual disclosures. And so for those listening, this grandnephew was, was in the care of Justice Thomas at the time. Is that what is being implicated here? Yes. Thomas was the legal guardian of Mark Martin. That's his name. He's around 30 now. But Mark was never officially his adopted son or adopted by him. So it doesn't matter who Mark was or is. It matters that Thomas received a six-figure gift that went unreported. Are there rules around who can give gifts to Supreme Court justices? They are, but they're they're pretty flexible. So in general, Supreme Court justices under law should not be soliciting any gifts from anyone, especially if they have business before the courts. But rules often like these are only as strong as they're going to be enforced. And, you know, I can't think of a single time where a Supreme Court justice has been fined under the law for accepting an improper gift. What about um, the income of Supreme Court justices? So they get a federal salary. And then, like, what are the other ways that they can supplement that income uh, legally? So justices are permitted to teach with various law schools, and they can make up to about $32,000 a year on top of their roughly $275,000 salaries. And they can write books. Some of them have had very lucrative book contracts. And then they can own various investments, whether that be additional properties, so like rental income or stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, and also spousal income is allowed, of course, as well. So, so what mechanisms are there to enforce these rules? So the mechanisms are not great. There's impeachment and removal, which has never happened with the Supreme Court justice in U.S. history. And then under the federal financial disclosure rule, there is this ability where the judicial branch's policymaking body would send a recommendation to the attorney general, and then the attorney general could fine a justice $50,000 per violation, but that also has never happened. So right now, there's very little that can be done to a justice other than feel the wrath of public shame. So your organization is called Fix the Court, and that means you think it needs to be fixed. So if you had a magic wand, where would you start? Term limits. I would start with by ending life tenure for the justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that future justices should serve only 18 years. So every president would have two picks per term. You'd have a new justice every two years. Two times nine is 18. And you would not be imbuing these nine fallible human 
vessels with unchecked power for 35 or 40 years, as is the case now. In sort of the more, you know, things that might happen in the next few years type realm, I think you would you would want the justices of the Supreme Court to have the same strict reporting and acceptance requirements on gifts, travel, personal hospitality that members of the House and Senate have to follow and requiring them to divest from all individual stock and have Congress create stricter laws about conflicts of interest and recusal so we know when the justices are recusing, why they're recusing, and they're more forthcoming about their conflicts real and perceived. The theory is is that if we're going to have this institution that is the most powerful in our government, then they shouldn't also have the least accountability, that they should have some basic ethics guidelines and strictures that they are required to follow and that they're really setting the tone for moral leadership in this country and aren't just floating at the bottom. That's Gabe Roth. He is executive director of Fix the Court. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Later today on All Things Considered, he's the conservative lawyer fighting some of America's most divisive legal cases. Jonathan Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell. Jonathan Mitchell. The architect of the Texas law that banned abortions after six weeks. He's a kind of a technical magician. My experience with him is that he has very driven strategy to ban abortion by any means necessary. A profile of lawyer Jonathan Mitchell later today. Listen online at this station's website at npr.org or on your radio. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about 10 minutes, you'll hear about some online tutorials. They're teaching people how to steal Kias and Hyundais, and they're spurring a surge of auto thefts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And the How God Works podcast, Boston Live Taping, May 15th. Explore Gen Z's collapsing happiness and how ancient wisdom can help. HowGodWorks.org. It is 63 degrees in Boston. Sunny skies today and highs in the mid-70s. A chance of some showers tonight with lows in the mid-50s. A chance of showers tomorrow, mainly in the early morning, then gradual clearing and Monday's temperatures reaching the low 70s. This is WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. A police officer is getting credit for stopping the country's latest mass shooting. Authorities say he was on an unrelated call when he shot and killed the gunman who killed eight people at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, near Dallas. Seven others were wounded, three of them critically. In Ocean Springs, Mississippi, a suspect is in custody in Friday night shooting at a restaurant. One person was killed and six others were injured. Police say they are not releasing the suspect's name to avoid tainting the investigation. And street parties are being held across the UK today amid the ongoing celebration for the coronation of King Charles III. Some 20,000 people are expected to attend a concert this evening at Windsor Castle. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's another day in America with news of another mass shooting, this time just outside of Dallas. A gunman opened fire on shoppers at an outlet mall. Now nine people, including the shooter, are dead and at least five are hospitalized. Member station KERA's Catherine Hobbs joins us now with the latest. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So this shooting happened in Allen, Texas yesterday afternoon. What do we know this morning? Right now, there's a lot of information, photos, videos, et cetera, circulating on social media. But of course, we're still waiting to get more details confirmed by the city of Allen and their police department. At last night's press conference, Allen's chief of police, Brian Harvey, said that an officer was responding to an unrelated call at the outlets when the shooting took place. He heard gunshots, located the shooter, neutralized the shooter, neutralized the threat. We believe at this point that the shooter acted alone. When I left the scene, police dogs were still working. SWAT was still on site, along with many police officers and a handful of other first responders. Tonight, there'll be a vigil at Cottonwood Creed Baptist Church in Allen, Texas. And what's been the response from officials there? So at last night's press conference, we heard from a handful of officials. All of them applauded first responders for their swift action. And they also asked the community to hold the victims and their families in prayer. We heard from Alan Mayor Ken Folk, and he said that he's heard from the White House, from Governor Abbott, and many other municipalities, and they're all offering support. They're also asking that anyone who has details call 1-800-CALL-FBI, as this is an ongoing active investigation. And you talked to witnesses at the scene what did you hear from them? I did. When I arrived at the scene, most of the witnesses were gathered at a nearby gas station. The entire mall was being uh, swept, so it was fully shut down, and most people didn't have access to their cars. Um, all the folks I spoke to there were shaken up, as I'm sure you can imagine. One man who gave me a good bit of info was Colin Polikokiko, and he sheltered in place inside a Tory Birch store while the shooter opened fire. You all just kind of knew what to do. Does um, this happen so often? And when he was guided out by police, he said that he saw bodies on the ground soaked in blood. You know, saying everyone knew what to do because it happened so often, it's, uh, it's still, it's, it's just so disheartening. Uh, now you mentioned that the man we just heard saw victims of the shooting People are also seeing videos online from the scene there in Allen, Texas. Is there anything investigators can learn from those videos? Absolutely, yeah. Police are looking at all of that right now. Um, the videos circulating have shown a man leaving his car and opening fire 
with what appears to be an assault-style assault rifle. We've also seen video that appears to show the shooter on the ground with his weapon next to him with lots of extra ammunition. Um, Colin Polikiko, who I spoke with, one of the witnesses, confirmed that that's what he saw when he evacuated. We're also seeing videos showing children among the victims, but the city of Allen hasn't released demographic information confirming the victims' identities yet. What kind of help is there for people affected by the shooting? I mean, this was at a mall. Anyone could just be at a mall, and now they have to live with this. Absolutely, yeah. Around 7 p.m., I started seeing Red Cross workers arrive, and they were going around with witnesses, checking in with them. They were gathering a list of people who needed hotel accommodations or meals, and they were also providing meals to firefighters and other first responders. That's reporter Katherine Hobbs of Member Station KERA in Dallas. Katherine, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a while since we've talked variants, and there's a new one, Arcturus, scientifically known as XBB.1.16, is a subvariant of Omicron and was first found in India this January and was declared a variant of interest by the World Health Organization last month. Carlos Del Rio teaches medicine at Emory University, and he joins us now. Thank you for coming back to the program. Delighted to be with you. So let's start with the basics here. How is Arcturus different from other variants and subvariants that we've seen in the past? You know, this strain is being monitored very carefully just because it's, it's rapidly growing and now represents about 15% of, of strains isolated in, in the United States. And what's interesting about this variant is it has certain mutations that make it uh, more transmissible. It's about 1.2 uh, times more infectious, more transmissible than prior variants. So what we're going to see is, is over the next several months and into the summer, this will become the, the dominant variant in the United States. And uh, it doesn't produce more severe disease, and we need to say that, but it is more contagious without doubt. You said that it doesn't produce more serious illness. Are there any symptoms associated with Arcturus that may be different from Omicron and other variants? Symptoms that we see with this variant include very high fever, cough, cold-like symptoms, but there's something that has come back during Omicron that loss of sense of taste and smell kind of disappeared, and now this is again a common symptom. And the other symptom that it's seeing, and is primarily being seen in children, is conjunctivitis, is pink eye. So if you have a kid and the kid has pink eye, uh, you need to think about, about COVID as being one of the uh, possible diagnoses. So nearly 70% of Americans are now vaccinated and COVID deaths are down by 95% since January 2021. The Biden administration says it's ending the public health emergency later this week. Is Arcturus a threat to those very promising statistics and to the end of the public health emergency? That's a very complicated question, but let me try to, to break it down for your audience. Number one, we have a, a lot of immunity and we call this the immunological wall. The challenge, though, is that CDC recently changed the recommendations and said in order to be up to date in your immunizations, you need to have received the bivalent booster. And only 16% of the U.S. population has received their bivalent booster. And furthermore, the people that I worry the most about are those over the age of 65. And among those over the age of 65, only 46% have received one bivalent booster, and virtually nobody has received a second bivalent booster, which they should. You know, the, the Biden administration is ending, as you say, the public health emergency on May 11th. What's going to happen on May 12th? The availability 
and access to vaccines and boosters for free continues to exist. As long as there is a supply, nothing is changing. How about home testing? Oh, what's going to happen? Well, something is changing. At home testing, those over-the-counter tests are not going to be for free anymore. And uh, depending on your insurance, your insurance may pay for it, may not pay for it. But, but this is an issue that, you know, I tell people, you still have a few days, go to, to the government side, get your four COVID tests that you can get before May 11th and keep them at home. And the last one is treatments. Again, nothing is changing. As long as there's treatments available and there's still plenty of treatments available, if you get a prescription from your doctor and May 12th, you go to the drugstore to get, you know, your Paxlovid or any other medication for COVID, it's still going to be available for free. So looking ahead, what should people be doing to keep themselves safe? You know, especially folks who are at a higher risk of getting very sick from COVID. Well, I think I, I tell people that they need to do the following things. Number one is you need to be up to date in your vaccinations, which means if you have not received a bivalent booster, you need to get one. And if you're over the age of 65 and you already received one more than four months ago, you need to get a second one. Number two, order your free COVID test and keep them at home. If you develop symptoms, test yourself. And if you test positive for COVID and you are at high risk, if you're over the age of 60, over the age of 65, go ahead and start therapy. Because, you know, treatment with Paxlovid makes a huge difference. And I remind people that treatment is not because your symptoms are severe. It's actually because your risk of developing severe disease is high. And that's primarily determined by your age, also by your degree of immunosuppression. So if you're a very immunosuppressed individual, that, that is clearly an issue. And the third thing you need to do is to stay alert and to realize, you know, you may put yourself at risk. You may go to a meeting, you may go to an event. And that's a decision that we need to personally take. Am I capable to, to get infected or not? The risk of evaluation is very different between a 25-year-old, otherwise healthy individual and an 80-year-old, you know, uh, individual with severe lung disease. They may think very differently about how risky it is to, to go to a wedding, for example, or go to a big event. But in general, you know, people are assuming their normal lives. And, and I think what we need to do is stay ahead in our immunization, stay up to date, and, and make sure that we get diagnosed and we get started on therapy when appropriate. Carlos Del Rio is a distinguished professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you. It's the social media trend that's fueling a surge in car thefts. Videos show how certain models of Hyundais and Kias can be hot-wired with only a screwdriver and a USB cable because they're not fitted with engine immobilizers, which essentially act as anti-theft devices. And it's bringing misery to thousands of drivers. The car's dead. The engine's dead. Oh, who wants to buy this? Now, attorneys general in 17 states have signed a letter calling on the car companies to recall the affected vehicles. Among them is California's Rob Bonta, who joins us now from Palm Springs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. So it's estimated that more than 8 million vehicles could be vulnerable to this kind of theft. How has your state been affected by these Hyundai and Kia cars being stolen in this manner? We've seen a major spike in thefts of Hyundai and Kia vehicles that uh, we've been focusing on with our requests for a recall. And we're seeing in some cities doubling, tripling of thefts of these specific vehicles because of 
the knowledge that all you need is a screwdriver and a USB cable to be able to steal them. And viral videos show exactly how to do it. These manufacturers violated the law, in our view, by failing to equip these vehicles with standard protections and anti-theft technology, including engine immobilizers. At the very same time they were manufacturing these cars in the United States, they were uh, without the engine immobilizers, they were manufacturing and selling the exact same cars with engine immobilizers in Europe and Canada. They cut corners. They uh, were trying to save a buck. So, so you're one of the, the signatories of a letter calling on Hyundai and Kia to recall these vehicles, but both companies say that customers can get a software fix at their dealers. So why do you think a recall is still necessary? The process that Hyundai and Kia is taking is taking too long. Uh, some will not get the fix till later this summer. Some owners, their vehicles, the fix does not take. It does not work. We anticipate and predict that's about 72,000 in California. So they need a car that follows the law and the safety standards of the federal government. So Kiev, for example, says its vehicles comply with federal safety standards. Um, so that's why they say a recall isn't necessary. Do you believe that the federal law is at a place where it is actually covering what needs to be covered when it comes to this anti-theft technology and making sure that cars have it? I think Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 114 is, is pretty clear. It requires that a vehicle that's manufactured and sold in the United States operate when the key is activated and not operate when the key is not activated. And the latter is not true. Without the key activated in the vehicle, it is very easy, again, with a screwdriver and a USB cable to make the vehicle operate. And I believe that violates Federal Motor Vehicle Standard 114. It seems the manufacturers don't agree. This problem, certainly it involves car manufacturers, but do you think that social media companies have a responsibility to remove what are basically crime tutorials from their platforms? I do. When those videos were put on TikTok and other platforms, I do believe that those platforms, those companies should have taken them down immediately. Uh, Some did, maybe not as fast as necessary. But Kia and Hyundai made a conscious and deliberate decision to essentially have a car that may as well have a sign that said, steal me on it. The main culpability here, the failure to follow the law, to follow the safety laws of the United States of America, lies at the feet of Kia and Hyundai. That's Rob Bonta, California's Attorney General. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In Utah, when users logged onto the adult content site Pornhub on Monday, they were met with a message that Pornhub, quote, made the difficult decision to completely disable access to the website in Utah. That block came two days before a state law went into effect that requires all adult sites to verify users' ages. Sage Miller, politics reporter at KUER in Salt Lake City, is here now to explain all the details around the fight between Utah and Pornhub. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Break down this state law for us. 
So the law SB 287 passed unanimously, and as you said, it requires anyone who wants to access an adult content site to show that they are at least 18 years of age to do so. They could use a government record or a third-party identification service in order to check, and they would have to provide this verification every single time they logged on. Bill sponsor, Republican Senator Todd Weiler, said during a Senate committee hearing that you should be able to have to prove you're an adult to view pornography because it's illegal for children to view it and it's illegal for adults to show it for children. But he also added that it would be on the burden of the adult content websites to verify somebody's age. And this has absolutely upset sites like Pornhub because they say there's no way to comply with this law. Utah doesn't have a digitized government identification service to do this, whereas Louisiana that has a similar law does. So ultimately, because of this, Pornhub says they can't comply with the law, nor do they want to be held liable for not following it. So they decided to ban access to the site for everybody in the state. Okay, so. So a lawsuit has been filed against this legislation or this new law. What claims does it make? The Free Speech Coalition filed the lawsuit. It's a trade organization for the adult entertainment industry. They believe this law is unconstitutional for various reasons. They say it restricts freedom of speech and information by not allowing people to access these sites without handing over personal data. They also cite a 1997 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that age verification requirements like the one instituted in Utah are unconstitutional so long as there are less intrusive methods such as device-level internet filters. They say parents aren't taking the opportunity to block their children from using these sites and therefore there should just be a larger educational campaign. Therefore they should not have to restrict it for everybody who is of age. Mike Stabile is the Director of Public Affairs for the Free Speech Coalition. Eventually they're going to have to defend this law and they're going to lose and it's going to cost the state hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a pointless exercise. The Free Speech Coalition expects a hearing within the next few weeks. They're asking a U.S. district court to file an injunction, and we will expect a decision soon. What's been the reaction to all of this? Senator Todd Weiler, who was the bill sponsor, is a pretty vocal person on Twitter, and his constituents are upset. People are throwing profanities at him. Others are commenting that the Utah legislature is overstepping their bounds. And from what I saw, only one message he posted was applauding his efforts to protect children by blocking sites like Pornhub or requiring age verification. But Utahns are finding their way around this Pornhub block. Virtual and private networks or VPNs in Utah have skyrocketed. According to a recent Google trend search, Utah tops all 50 states for VPN searches by more than double. So I think this just proves people will get around government or company intervention to access what they want to access. Sage Miller, politics reporter at KUER in Salt Lake City. Thank you so much, Sage. Thank you so much, Aisha. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today marks the first in-person Project Bread Walk for Hunger since 2019, and the event covers a lot less ground. The walk's traditional 20-mile course has been pared down to three miles around Boston Common. The organization says the new format increases accessibility and reduces costs, and that funnels more money toward the effort to end hunger in Massachusetts, where food insecurity affects one in five households with children. 
Nantucket is not changing its regulations about short-term rentals. Yesterday, voters on the island rejected a town meeting article that would have imposed new rules about which people could make their homes available on sites such as Airbnb. The measure called for giving that option only to people who live in those homes for the majority of the year. Blue Bike is offering free two-hour rides today and every Sunday in May. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is sponsoring the event in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. The company says research suggests that movement, such as biking, is associated with reduced depression and anxiety and with improved self-esteem. It's 66 degrees in Boston, sunny today, highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. You can experience the all-electric BMW iX with BMW performance, luxury, and technology, featuring a go-anywhere range of up to 307 miles. Test drives are available at your local BMW center. It's totally okay to like a job and work hard, as long as the job isn't so all-consuming that the worker gets carried away. A healthy worker is in their office thinking about being on the ski slopes. Workaholic is on the ski slopes thinking about being back in the office. Tips for balancing work and life. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Tara Mustanen knows a lot about peatlands. These are boggy wetlands that hold peat, a deposit of dead plants and other decayed organic material. Over the last century, Finland has lost many of its peatlands, and scientist Tero Mustanen has been leading the way to help restore his country's peatlands, teaming up with local indigenous communities to do so. For that work, he received the Goldman Environmental Prize last month, and he joins us now to talk about his work. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ayesha. It's a real pleasure to be here today. How did you get interested in peatlands? I know you're a, a scientist, but has this always been an interest for you? Yeah, many of the Finns of my generation grew up next to a lake fishing, or in my case, my family was doing a lot of what we call household fishery. And in our lake systems, the peatlands act like filters. So they cleanse the waters, they are in the catchment area and so on. And I was born in middle of 1970s, in the first part of my life, I saw a very high water quality and great fish in our lakes. But then they started to mine these peatlands and it really severely polluted the lake. And that's really where the motivation comes from. So can you describe peatlands to someone who's never seen one? You say they're beside lakes a lot of times. And you say they act as a filter, but what do they look like? Yeah, you used to have them plenty in the U.S. as well, especially in the Great Lakes area. But here, when you walk on a peatland, it's a very open space, sparsely populated with trees. The trees don't grow very tall and it's very squishy. 
is it like spongy, like kind of mossy area, like greenish, and then you walk on it, and it's just like a wide area of kind of like spongy, mossy land? Well, it sounds like you have been on a peatland, <laughs> even though you don't admit that. So, I mean, restoring wetlands sounds like a really massive effort. How do you do it? How do you get new peatlands? So after the war, Finland faced a really hard question in the sense that we had to pay our war debt to Russia or Soviet Union at the time in 1940s. And Finland doesn't have oil and gas. We don't have the kind of economic power that Norway, for example, has. And then the government decided, well, we have huge amount of peatlands. So let's use them for mining, for energy purposes, and then for timber growth. Unfortunately, not all of those ditching programs produced any timber forest, they failed. In our case, where uh, I'm working for an organization called Snow Change, and then we have this landscape rewilding program, we are restoring these peatlands, and it really depends on the damage that has been done. Some of those mining sites are like moonscapes. Nothing grows there. They are black all the way to the horizon, hundreds of square acres. And there we have to dig essentially from scratch new wetlands that start to then operate as a part of natural cycle. The other side of the coin is that if those peatlands have been ditched, we can then act faster. We block those ditches with something called micro dams, raise the waters, and the peatland may have a quicker recovery in those cases. Why do this? Like, Why is this so important to do? In some ways, the peatlands are the second lungs of the planet. People may think of Amazonia, the Amazon and the rainforest as a critically important area for climate, for carbon cycle and so on. But actually in the subarctic and the Arctic, the peatlands are also drawing down carbon dioxide and they are keeping this carbon on the ground. So they are very central in the fight against climate change. They are also very important for biodiversity. A lot of the birds will go there and uh, they also beautiful landscape. You know, as we mentioned, you received the Goldman Environmental Prize for your work restoring peatlands. How did it feel to be recognized? We are living in a small village in the boreal Finland, surrounded by a forest. So we are not the uh, global superstars that usually get these huge recognitions. I'm, of course, extremely thankful for the prize. And it's never been given to Finland before. But this is not only me. There are hundreds of people in many villages through our work, including in Alaska. So we have been working in a place called Unalakleet, which is on the Bering Strait. They are also extremely aware, the Inupiaq people, about the changes in the Arctic, the loss of sea ice, coastal erosion, all these things. So I guess the idea that I have for the prize is that it's given for this whole community of villages that are really fighting for the planet. That scientist, Taro Mustanin, thanks for talking to us today and congratulations on your award. Thank you. After more than 100 years, Peter Pan still refuses to grow up. There are no rules, no schools, no bedtimes, no mothers and fathers, and most of all, no growing up. That, most of all. A new version of the old classic is streaming on Disney+. And the filmmakers made an effort to fix a character now widely considered racist. 
and Peter Pan in Wendy, Tiger Lily is played by native actor Alyssa Wapanatok. Wendy Tikia. Pardon? Are you the Wendy? NPR's Elizabeth Blair takes a look at how that process went. I am from the Big Stone Cree First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in Canada. Um, but I grew up in a very small town called Conklin, Alberta. And in that small town, Alyssa Wapanatak says she loved Disney movies. Every Disney film was like my, my jam. That's how my family was. We loved all the classics. Including the 1953 animated version of Peter Pan. How do we get to Neverland? Fly, of course. Fly? It's easy. But of course, there was some stuff that was not done accurately. Among the racist depictions of Indigenous people is a song called What Makes the Red Man Red. We all grew up with that. Um, as Indigenous people, we, we saw representation that was not done right. So Wapanatak was thrilled that Disney Plus not only cast her, a Native actor, but also sought out her feedback. I was able to bring my culture into it and bring my language into it and just do what I wanted with the role. Her costume is taken from a lot of the archives that we looked at and and taken from this day and age, our dance regalia that we would use in powwow. So you'll see a lot of the same type of work that's on there, like the beadwork, the handmade quill work that's on there. Same with on her horse. Her horse's saddle is also very similar to her costume. Tiger Lily watches over the Lost Boys on Neverland. Because if you don't know stories, then you're an imposter. And you know what we do, they're imposters. Some of the Lost Boys wear moccasins made by artisan Jamie Gentry. I am Danakta and Mamalelikala from the Kwakwakiwak Nation. Gentry says one day, out of the blue, a costume designer she didn't know reached out to her, asking if she'd like to make moccasins for a Disney movie. I was kind of flabbergasted <laughs> at first, and like, I'm just, you know, one person in the world and how she managed to find me. Gentry says viewers might not even notice her moccasins. It's not like you know, there's a spotlight on them or anything, but I know that they're there. And so that felt really special to be able to do that. In the original J.M. Barry story, Peter Pan rescues Tiger Lily after she's kidnapped by Captain Hook. But in the new Disney Plus movie, it's Tiger Lily who saves Peter more than once. In one scene, Peter is knocked unconscious after falling down a giant vortex. Tiger Lily heals him with a medicinal plant. <sighs> Peter Pan would not be alive at the end of the film without Tiger Lily's intervention and without Indigenous knowledge intervention. Adrian Keene is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and a faculty member at Brown University. She says the authenticities in the new Peter Pan movie are remarkable, but not enough. No matter how authentic and nuanced and perfect the portrayal of the Native people is, the bottom line is you are still placing actual Indigenous folks alongside fairies and uh, mermaids and all of these fantasy creatures, and that's not something that is ever going to be positive for Indigenous people today. Both Keene and Alyssa Wapanatak do see signs of progress in Hollywood. They both cite the recent movie Prey and the series Reservoir Dogs as examples. But Wapanatak says it's just a start. And I feel like it's going to just blow up. 
I imagine is going to blow up. And I, I hope so because I have a few projects that I would like to bring out as well. <laughs> In addition to the new Peter Pan movie, Disney Plus is streaming the old 1953 version. A disclaimer before the film begins reads, this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. The statement continues, rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Singer-songwriter Caroline Rose has several albums and styles under their belt. They released the witty, funny indie pop album Loner, Superstar, the stylized digital pop concept album about fame. And now Caroline Rose is getting personal. The Art of Forgetting is Caroline Rose's latest album. It's an emotional, candid collection made during a difficult time in their life. Caroline Rose, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you talk about the time in your life that this album blossomed from? Yeah, I think the more I talk about it, the easier it gets. It was just a like a perfect storm of events that led to just feeling, I don't want to say desperate, <laughs> but maybe like emotionally desperate in a way. Mm. This was kind of the beginning of the pandemic. And at the same time, I was going through a split with my partner and I realized I had left very little for myself and I had kind of forgotten how to be kind to myself. I want to talk a little bit about the album's title. It's called The Art of Forgetting. You first hear the phrase in your song, Miami. I mean, forgetting can be a lot of things. Like it could be forgetting who you are, forgetting this relationship, forgetting the pain. What did you mean by that title, The Art of Forgetting? That was one of the earlier songs that I wrote when I was <laughs> kind of filled with resentment and it had a sort of negative connotation to it. Mm. There was more fear of myself being forgotten and then, you know, as time passes, it started to feel more like to be able to forget things was like a healthy process of letting go. To be able to hold something, you know, in the palm of your hand, and then when it's time to let it go, you move on. You've got to get through this life somehow. You've got to get through this life somehow. You used a lot of devices and, and media that have the characteristics of fading um, or made you feel like you were forgetting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I was just gravitating towards instruments that have sort of human-like quality, that decay, wooden instruments, something that has a bit more of a, a life connection to it. Caroline, I just wanted to say hi and just hear your voice. I love 
love you so much, and I think about you every day, and I hope everything's going good with you. One thing that is throughout the album is you have these voicemails from your grandma. It seems like she represents a bit of hope. I'm wondering if you ever got to share these songs with her. I, you know, I actually did get to share the, the songs with her. And it was actually maybe a few days before she passed away. So they hit a little harder now. It's just like these little memories that are historicized. Okay, anything you do is good for me. You are the best one. We spoke every day this whole time I was writing this album because a lot of sources of comfort in my life had kind of just gone completely out, out the window. And I felt like those were really grounding moments. It makes it seem on the album like I never just spoke to her, but <laughs> we actually spoke all the time. <laughs> I just had all these voicemails from her over the years. You, honey. you give me a call if you, if you have a chance. I love you. Bye. This was a very hard time for you, but now that you're coming out of it, what do you want the audience to take away from this? I was so focused on this album being just the album that I wanted to make. And when it was done, it felt like it was for me. And I don't know if I've ever even done that before. And everyone has been sharing really beautiful feedback of just about how they relate to the story and how they relate to the music and how it moves them. And I just, I couldn't ask for anything more because that's the dream. That's the point of why we do this is try and express ourselves, put it out there and hope that people are moved by it. Life goes on. I just gotta take a beat. Get some fresh air in my lungs. I just gotta do my thing and shake it off. That's songwriter and producer Caroline Rose. Their new album, The Art of Forgetting, is out now. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon, in stores or at hintwater.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Good morning, I'm Sharon Prouty. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. 66 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, highs in the mid-70s. I'm Jeff Cohen, WBUR's managing producer for local news. My mother's name was Judy. She died seven years ago. One of the things I miss most about her is her voice. Luckily, she called me every day, and she left me lots of messages to tell me she was proud. So excited. Call us when you have time. Or mad. You have time to play on Facebook, but you won't answer your mother's phone call. And the obvious. I love you. Kiss the girls. Don't make them cry. Bye. 
Mom had no idea how much these voicemails would mean. Little gifts that she left me for later, like a letter lost in the mail that suddenly delivered. They're bits of audio and love that remind me of the power of both. If you love the power of radio and you're looking to celebrate your mom or anyone else this Mother's Day, consider sending Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll be supporting storytelling and the power of the human voice. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org and thanks. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The White House is sending 1,500 U.S. troops to the southern border this week. We talked to a historian who says President Biden is following a well-worn script. This is part of a long history, and Biden has joined with a series of his uh, predecessors that goes back to the mid-19th century. And Iran is jailing journalists who report on protests there. Find out more about this crackdown. Plus, comedian Hannah Gadsby is known for emotional gut punches, but their latest special warms the heart. It's Sunday, May 7th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The community of Allen, Texas, is coping with the country's latest mass shooting. A gunman opened fire at an outlet mall this weekend, killing eight people and injuring seven others, three critically. Shoppers are describing a nightmare, as Catherine Hobbs of member station KERA reports. Colin Polakiko sheltered in place inside a Tory Burch store while the shooter opened fire. He said the event was terrifying, but people at the scene slipped into an automatic response. The most ramaging thing about it to me was the fact that we all just kind of knew what to do. Um, because this happens so often. When police led Paula Kiko and other witnesses from the shop, he said they were routed around several bodies covered in blood. The identities of the victims have not yet been shared with the public. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Hobbs in Allen. In Ocean Springs, Mississippi, a suspect is in custody in Friday night shooting at a restaurant. One person was killed and six others injured. Arab foreign ministers have agreed to readmit Syria to the 22-nation Arab League. Twelve years after a crackdown on street protests that led to civil war, the decision at a meeting in Cairo was taken behind closed doors. BBC's Mike Thompson has more. Pressure has been growing within the Arab world to bring Syria back into the fold. Given regional rivalries, this is likely to have been intensified by the visit to Damascus a few days ago by Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi. Syria's membership was suspended more than a decade ago after the regime's brutal repression of pro-democracy protests. The news follows a gradual thaw in relations between Damascus and other Arab governments in the region. Foreign ministers from Egypt and Saudi Arabia visited Syria recently, and last month Damascus restored full diplomatic relations with 
Tunisia. Fighting in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum is reported to be ongoing, even as envoys from Sudan's warring factions are in Saudi Arabia for talks. There's no word on the state of the negotiations. The ongoing writer's strike is causing ripple effects far from Hollywood picket lines. NPR's Tilda Wilson reports the film industry in Georgia is being affected. Georgia gives generous tax incentives to filmmakers. That's helped make it the third largest production hub in the U.S. after California and New York. About 15 TV shows are being filmed in Georgia right now, including Will Trent on ABC about a detective in Atlanta. You want me? Just come for me. I'm right here! But filming might be delayed if the strike continues. TV and movie production is already down by nearly 40% compared to last year. Larger shifts in the industry have contributed to the strike. Network and streaming services have slashed their budgets and are greenlighting fewer shows. Most active productions have the scripts they need to finish what they've started, but actors in Georgia say the number of new auditions are becoming increasingly scarce. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Voters in Nantucket have rejected a proposal that would have limited short-term rentals on the island. An article at town meeting would have imposed new rules about which people could rent their homes on sites like Airbnb, giving that option only to people who live in those homes for the majority of the year. The 558 to 378 vote marked the third time in three years that Nantucket voters have turned down regulations on short-term rentals for non-residents. Today's first in-person Project Bread Walk for Hunger since 2019 is underway, and it looks a little different this year. The walk's traditional 20-mile course has been pared down to three miles around Boston Common. Project Bread's chief advancement officer, Elizabeth Greenhall, says the new format is more accessible for both adults and children. She says it also greatly reduced costs such as security and funnels more money toward ending hunger in the state. We have one in five households with children right now who don't have enough to eat in Massachusetts, which is staggering. Um, And so this is very much an urgent opportunity and a great way for people to make a tangible difference. Project Bread projected 3,000 people would walk the course. It's aiming to raise a million dollars. Fenway Park is hosting thousands of Northeastern graduates and their families for the university's commencement today. Graduate student ceremony is just beginning. The undergraduate ceremony is set for this afternoon at 4 o'clock. It is 70 degrees in Boston, sunny today with a high around 80 degrees. A chance of some showers tonight with lows dipping to the mid-50s. For Monday, a chance of some showers mainly in the early morning, then gradual clearing tomorrow, and highs reaching the low 70s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, annuals, and vegetables, and outdoor living pavers and wallstone products. WestonNurseries.com. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. There's a meeting scheduled this week between President Joe Biden and congressional leaders from both parties to talk about raising the nation's debt limit. Republicans want spending cuts in exchange for doing that, 
On Friday, the president said the debt limit and the budget are two separate issues, and he accused MAGA Republicans of holding the U.S. economy hostage. We're not a deadbeat nation. We pay our bills. Joining me now to talk about this is NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Eliason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So uh, the, the Treasury Secretary notified Congress on Monday that the U.S. could default by June 1st. So that seems like it should be a highly motivating factor for this meeting. But is it? That's a good question. In the past, negotiations on the debt ceiling have always found a face-saving off-ramp for both parties at the last minute. So far, there's no off-ramp in sight for this one. There are a lot of Republican lawmakers who think it's worth risking default, and that would be default on spending commitments Congress has already authorized, if they can achieve their goal of cutting funds for some of President Biden's priorities like climate change and student debt relief. But the president is not interested in making those changes, so the two sides are very far apart. So what are the outcomes that you're expecting following this meeting? There are a couple different outcomes. They could negotiate a deal, something that both sides could claim as a victory for them. They could Mm. stay at an impasse, let the country default, which would have horrific consequences. They also could kick the can down the road, agree to a temporary increase of the debt ceiling, which would then have to be raised again later this year around the same time that the big government funding bill has to be passed. And that would risk a government shutdown, although there are many people in Washington who think that a shutdown is the lesser of two evils compared to a default. Hmm. Well, kicking the can down the road is something that uh, Congress likes to do. But uh, who would suffer in a default? The American people would suffer. It would be economically disastrous, according to economists. Unemployment would go up, inflation would go up, a recession would probably happen. In terms of political pain, the White House thinks the Republicans would be blamed for a default, but if there is any economic fallout, that would be on President Biden's watch, and it would certainly hurt his efforts to get reelected. And and this, I guess, would be a good time to talk about the latest jobs report, which was a little bit of a surprise, right? A positive surprise. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4 percent. That's the lowest since 1969. African-American unemployment fell to 4.7. That's the lowest since these statistics have been collected. And a lot of jobs were created. Wages went up. That's good for workers. But it also tells you the economy is not cooling off, which is making it harder for the Federal Reserve to bring down inflation without tipping the economy into a recession. Uh, Mara, the the Department of Justice had a big victory last week. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty of seditious conspiracy and the attack on the U.S. Capitol over two years ago. What is the significance of that? The significance is that seditious conspiracy is the most serious charge brought in the January 6th prosecutions. And so far, the Department of Justice has a pretty impressive record. They've charged about 1,000 people, and apparently there are more indictments to come. This also raises the question of how January 6th will play in the 2024 elections. Former President Trump not only said in that 2020 debate to the Proud Boys, quote, stand back and stand by. But he's talked about pardoning the January 6th defendants. He's really leaned into his support for them. In a recent rally he held in Waco, Texas, he opened with footage of the insurrection and a recording of people who've been imprisoned for it singing the national anthem. And that shows you that a big part of the Republican base, Donald Trump's supporters, see the January 6th defendants. They don't think they did anything wrong. They see them as political prisoners. Former President Trump is expected to participate in a CNN town hall on Wednesday. What will you be watching for with that? 
I'll be watching for how he's treated by a, quote, mainstream news organization. You know, he is, his account is back on Twitter. He is the front runner for the Republican nomination. He's going to get a lot of press coverage and a lot of scrutiny. And it shows you that while a large part of the Republican establishment may, may want Donald Trump to be in the rearview mirror, he is still very much on the hood of the car. Mm. That's NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Liason. Thank you, Mara. You're welcome. The Biden administration is deploying 1,500 active duty military to the southern border this week. The White House says they won't be there to patrol the border, but instead will help with administrative work. Many more people are expected to try to enter the United States with the end later this month of pandemic era restrictions. They allowed the U.S. to refuse entry to more asylum seekers. It's the latest in a long history of posting U.S. troops at the southern border. To talk about that history, I'm joined now by Arizona State University professor of Latin American history, Alex Avina. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your reaction. What did you think when you heard that troops were heading to the Mexican border once again? You know, I had a very typical historian response to this by thinking this is actually the rule um, when it comes to U.S.-Mexico border politics, not the exception. Because if we think about the history of the U.S.-Mexico border, it required the U.S. invasion of Mexico to create what is now known as the U.S.-Mexico border. So this is part of a long history, and Biden has joined with a series of of his uh, predecessors that goes back to the mid-19th century. I mean, so his immediate predecessor, uh, President Trump, deployed active duty troops to the border to help processing, um, you know, large caravans of, of migrants. The Biden administration says this is different from that, that troops won't be there to enforce the law or to intimidate migrants. I should say that, you know, the Trump administration also said that they weren't there to police. But the the Biden administration says that the troops that they are sending there will free up Border Patrol officers to do on the ground work. What do you think about this distinction that the Biden administration is trying to make? I don't see much of a distinction at all. I mean, primarily there's a legal aspect to this that goes back to the late 19th century, right, with the Posse Comitatus Act, which explicitly meant, lays out that the U.S. Army cannot participate in domestic law enforcement capacities. So there really isn't that distinction legally or historically. I think it's it's a political distinction. I mean, so you mentioned that this is a very long history Can you talk to me about the history of American troops at the border, you know, recognizing that obviously the way that, you know, the U.S. got the southern border was through military action. But in more recent history, as you talk about the 70s, 80s, 90s, what is the history of American troops at the border? I think one way to understand just like the U.S.-Mexico border from a U.S. military perspective is to think about it as a site of one of these forever wars. With the onset of particularly Mexican undocumented migration in the 70s and 80s, you started to see presidents, particularly like Ronald Reagan, start to conflate things like the war on drugs with undocumented migration into an issue of border security. And that's when you start to get increasing militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. It creates a much more lethal space for people who are trying to cross into the United States. Does the presence of troops change the flow of migration or change people's decisions to try to cross the border to get asylum, which is legal, does it affect people's decisions? No. 
so this latest deployment announced by President Biden occurs within, again, this recent context of border militarization. This goes back to the early 1990s with operations like Operation Gatekeeper, where uh, it became policy to militarize trans-border urban spaces with the idea that this would funnel crossers into really dangerous spaces like the Sonoran Desert with the idea that you know no migrant in their right mind would ever try to cross through a place as dangerous as the Sonoran Desert. But as we've seen since the mid-1990s, we have anywhere from seven to 10,000 people who have died trying to make that trek. And is that what you mean when you say it makes the space more lethal? Because these military troops, they're not, you know, shooting at people on the border, right? It's, it's the idea that they're being pushed into more dangerous areas. Or what do you mean by lethal? Yeah, what I, what I mean is that, yeah, these troops will not be engaged. It opens up the possibility of such type of abuse, but it, they hopefully um, will not be involved in, in, in something as violent as the shooting of, of, of migrants or refugee seekers, refugees or asylum seekers. I'm referring to more of like the structure of this border regime that has been created since the 1990s, where uh, by design, the way that the border has been militarized forces border crossers to have to go through increasingly dangerous places like the Sonoran Desert. You know, there are a lot of high profile Republicans who've started throwing around the idea of going to war with the drug cartels in a bid to crack down on the drug trade. How do you think that would go over in Mexico? And I mean, is there even an appetite for that in the U.S.? I, I don't I hope that there isn't much of an appetite for that beyond the 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 ramblings or the ideas of some prominent politicians. I mean, I think it's really frightening for me as someone with, you know, Mexican-American. My parents are from Mexico. I'm a historian of Mexico to hear these these ideas being callously thrown around because if you think about the broader history of it, you know, this would make, I don't know, I think the U.S. has invaded Mexico at least a half a dozen times. And almost every single time it's turned into some sort of quagmire for the U.S. military. And it results in the deaths of hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of Mexican civilians. So it's a really horrific idea that I think, again, it's a political move with very little resonance with like reality on the ground. Obviously, that's not how we should be dealing with with issues like fentanyl and, and fentanyl overdoses. That's Arizona State University professor of Latin American history, Alexander Avina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018. And coming up in about a half hour, Hannah Gadsby discusses humor, love, family, and storytelling. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Guides on buying and selling real estate in greater Boston, available at mraboston.com slash WBUR. Catch Light Painting. Committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at clarkliving.com. 
Wherever you are, you can stay tuned with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. It's 70 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and a high around 80 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Another mass shooting in Texas. Police say a gunman killed eight people and wounded seven others, three critically, at an outlet mall in the Dallas area before he was killed by police. Witnesses say the gunman was dressed in all black and used an assault-style rifle. Officials in the Canadian province of Alberta have declared a wildfire emergency. Premier Danielle Smith says a hot, dry spring has led to unprecedented fire conditions. Thousands have been forced from their homes. And this weekend's running of the Kentucky Derby is being overshadowed by the deaths of seven horses in the lead-up to the race. Two of the seven were euthanized in the hours before the 15-to-1 shot mage won the Derby by a length at Churchill Downs. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Protests and labor strikes continue in Iran following the September death of a young woman, Massa Amini, while in custody of the country's morality police. But the news that is reported out of Iran comes at a heavy price to journalists there, who have been the target of major crackdowns, with at least 100 journalists being among the thousands of people arrested in recent months. Three of those journalists, Elahe Mohammadi, Niloufar Hamed, and Narges Mohammadi, were honored last week with the UNESCO Guillermo Cano Press Freedom Prize in absentia as they remain locked up in Iran's infamous Avin prison. We're joined now by Yegane Rezayan, senior researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So we should mention right at the top that you yourself were arrested in Iran, along with your husband, Jason, and you were imprisoned for several months. Can you tell us a bit about how a journalist is treated there? Unfortunately, journalists, once they are arrested on anti-state or security charges, they immediately become political prisoners. That means they are not treated any better than any other political prisoners, especially notorious prisons like Evin. Um, They are kept in very small cells, especially in solitary confinement. In some cases, no bathroom or immediate access to water, um, no no window. Um, the fluorescent light is on 24-7. Every day condition is terrible, but also the mental pressure is very high because what the security forces do is to make sure they keep 
pressuring you and that's their their tactic to get you confess to everything you haven't done and basically make false confession that they can later use against you as evidence. Your research shows that over half the journalists detained in Iran right now are women. And, and, and these are mainstream journalists who are covering stories that are assigned to them, right? Yes. So I have to mention that all media in Iran is state-run media. So the government has complete control over everything that gets produced as media content, whether for TV, state TV, or state newspapers or radio. And they get assigned by their um, editors to do these stories. And that's why um, the charges that they later label these journalists with um, don't make sense and, and are absolute farce because once these journalists were assigned to go and cover such a story, they never thought that they're going to be charged with let's say, espionage or spreading propaganda against the system. The Committee to Protect Journalists listed Iran as the top jailer of journalists for 2022. How effective is this tactic in silencing the stories about what's unfolding in the country with people demanding more rights and government accountability? What I want to tell you is that our research shows the, the regime's tactics are not very successful anymore. And as much as they are still resorting to them, they are not effective anymore because we saw during these protests in the last six months, Iranian journalists not only kept covering whatever that was happening in the country and the realities on the ground, very truthfully, they also continue to shed light on the arrest of their colleagues and reported those in their respective medias, despite all the limitations, but also used social media platforms to report on the arrested colleagues of them. Also, I want to tell you that once some big number of journalists were arrested and there was this void of um, coverage in the state-run media, citizen journalists are the one who carried the torch and beautifully and bravely covered the protests and, again, the realities on the ground. Do things like the UNESCO Prize do anything to help the cause of jailed journalists in a country like Iran? The concern about these recognitions is that at the same time that it may make them untouchable and the regime knows that the world is watching how these journalists are being treated, at the same time, it will make their imprisonment longer or with the higher costs, particularly in the case of foreign journalists, that's when the government used them as bargaining chip. In the case of domestic journalists, that will make the regime to keep them for a longer time to make sure the world forgets about them and their names not being mentioned anywhere else. That's Yegone Rezayan, senior researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. 
Soul food to signifying civil rights to the blues. The American South is often considered the cornerstone of black American culture. But what does it mean to be a black southerner without this history? Today, 10% of black Americans are immigrants and the greatest number of them live in the South. That's according to the Pew Research Center. Leah Danella is NPR's Above the Fray Fellow. She's spent months in Tennessee, which has the fastest growing percentage of black immigrants in the region. She asked some of them to share how they understand their racial identities. Dreddy Ahmed has never been confused about her race. I knew I was black, like always. Growing up, though, there were aspects of black American culture that she had to get caught up on. This one girl I used to be friends with, I remember she asked us, like, Oh, like, you've never been to a cookout? Like, that's like a black, like, you've never been to, and like, me and like, two of my other Ethiopian friends were like, no, like, like, I'm sorry, like, I've never been to Today, Dreti is a public health student at Vanderbilt University. It's one of the South's most elite and storied institutions. Dreti lives in the dorms downtown among restaurants and honky-tonks and lots of Nashville traffic. Her friend group here is made up of people from a bunch of different backgrounds, from around the country and around the world. But in most of her classes... I never really go in with the expectation of um, seeing another, well, maybe like a black person, but like for it to be like a black Muslim woman, it's like, wow. That's a big difference from the spaces she was used to being in as a kid, even though she grew up nearby in suburban Nashville and Laverne. Dreddy's parents are Oromo, one of the largest ethnic minority groups in Ethiopia, they both came to Tennessee a couple of years before Dreddy was born and formed close relationships to other Oromo families. Just because of the fact that they all had a shared experience, um, I definitely grew up with um, my best friends, which were literally just like my parents' friends and their kids, and I would just go to like, I would call them my aunts and uncles, even though like there's no blood relation, but we're just all from Oromia. Within that tight community, though, there was a wide spectrum of ideas about race and identity. Dreddy said her dad's self-perception lines up pretty evenly with her own. He's like, yeah, I'm black, obviously. But her mom? She was telling me she's had experiences where people are like, oh, like, I, I didn't think you were black or, like, you don't look black or whatever. So I think she's more eager to say, like, oh, I'm Oromor, like, I'm Ethiopian, rather than say, like, oh, I'm a black woman. For others outside her family, those distinctions could be even more pronounced. In some East African households, people I know and things like that, race can be talked about negatively, even if it's just, like, Little comments like, oh, like the black Americans, they do this. Like, why do they act like that? When something contentious happened in pop culture or the news, Dreddy said she was sometimes surprised to hear people, like parents of friends, take stances that she just didn't relate to. I would notice that they would take the side of um, non-black people. And, like, it was always so weird to me because it's like, do you not realize you are also black? Like, I have immigrants that are here that don't understand the plight of African-Americans. That's Zulfat Swara. The immigrants that felt like, if you come to this country, it's a land of opportunities, you just have to work hard, then boom, you realize the American dream. Yes, but no. Swara is an elected official on Nashville's Metro Council at Large, the first Muslim woman to be an elected official in Tennessee, and the first Nigerian to be elected to any U.S. office. Today, a lot of what she advocates for is connected to issues of educational equity, she was first inspired to run when she saw how underfunded and under-resourced her child's school was. But when she came to the U.S. in the early 90s, she wasn't used to thinking about the ways that race might play into those inequities. The word racism, I didn't know what that was about, because everyone was black. But the longer Swar lived in the U.S., the more she learned about African-American history. After all, she was living in Tennessee. 
There are parks all over Nashville that used to be plantations, and just blocks from her office downtown is the site where college students participated in the 1960s lunch counter sit-ins. One of the bills that I passed in my time on council was renaming Fifth Avenue after John Lewis. So for me, learning about stories of people like that, teenagers, students, definitely will affect you. Being steeped in that history, Suarez started to understand anti-Blackness as a structural issue. And until we realize that, <laughs> we're missing it. Look, doesn't matter whether from your 80 or Nigeria or anything, you're still Black and you're still part of that system. And we all still have to fight together to change that system. Christina Greer is a political scientist at Fordham University and the author of the book, Black Ethnics. She says that Black immigrants are often affected by the same social and economic issues that affect other Black folks. Whether it's hiring, whether it's residential segregation, they have this mandatory Black prefix. They don't just get to become Americans like everybody else. And while being in the U.S. can mean having to face discrimination, a lot of immigrants are coming here without other options. So they have to make things work. May not be ideal, but we play the cards we have. But the way people think to play those cards can vary quite a lot. Some people try to form strong, tight-knit communities with other Black people. It's following the linked fate principle. In a racial space, we are Black people. We care about each other as Black people. We do have a diasporic consciousness, by and large, as a group. Others see the circumstances that Black Americans are dealing with, and their reaction is to do what they can to avoid being put in the same category. The process of assimilation for other immigrant groups has been, you know, change your name. Um, and here, it's, we're seeing people keep their name or keep their accent so that they're not seen as Black Americans. They are seen as immigrants who are Black, but not Black Americans. Of course, there are people who say that getting to choose your own identity, that's never really been an option. If I was to get in trouble with like police, they would identify me as an African-American woman. That's Alliance Wasse. She's a student, a veteran, and a part-time singer living in Memphis. In her free time, she's often helping out at after-school programs at Refugee Empowerment Center, a local support organization. In her experience, how someone self-identifies is only one variable in a very complex equation. She spent her early childhood in Rwanda, but she's ethnically Congolese. Her mother fled war in Congo before she was born. When I came to the U.S., I would tell people that I'm from Rwanda, because that's where I was born. I only speak in Rwanda, I don't speak Swahili. And my mom would be like, no. You're Congolese, you're from Congo. And when I tell people that I'm from Congo, they're like, no, you're not. But then in groups of Black Americans, Alian says... They identify me as an African. So in this America, I don't really think that I have like a place where I belong. Clearly, Alian has big questions about her identity. But what's hard for her is not deciding whether she's Black. That's a given. What's hard is figuring out where, in that very diverse identity, she belongs. And she wants that search for belonging not to be driven by fear. A lot of times when we think about race, we all, we all think about, you know, racism, um, that we forget the beautiful things about race. Because um, race also, like, comes in with culture and tradition. Things like music. Alliance is often asked to perform at weddings, which means she sings a lot of traditional songs from home. But when I asked her to sing a song on mic, the one she chose was from a different cultural tradition. There's a hero. After all, she contains multitudes. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. Leah Danella, NPR News. And Leah will have more stories in the coming weeks about the struggles and triumphs of being a Black immigrant in the American South. 
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Summer is right around the corner, and in the city of Blackpool on the English coast, that means good times at the zoo. We have a lot of animals. We have some ambassador species, a herd of, of breeding Asian elephants, uh, Bornean orangutans. Um, we've just opened up a new Magellanic penguin exhibit. Rebecca Reynolds is the head of education, conservation, and research. The Blackpool Zoo has more than a thousand animals, from A to, well, W from aardvarks to western lowland gorilla. There's lots to see, lots to do, lots of fun for the family. Including snacks, burgers, barbecue, even noodles and curries. And all those delicacies are very attractive to one particular animal, one that's not officially part of the zoo. Seagulls are relatively large birds and they're opportunist feeders with very sharp beaks. So they spot food and they want it and they don't have any regard for who has that food, where that food came from or who is going to eat it. Seagulls are swooping in to steal people's chips. And it's not just human animals who have to watch out for those sharp beaks. They can hear a bucket, they can hear a wheelbarrow, they can spot a zookeeper so they know where food is going to be. So in some occasions they can take food from our penguins when we're, when we're feeding them, our pelicans, they, they will eat the fish. The staff at the Blackpool Zoo has tried and failed many times to keep the seagulls at bay, even flying kites to distract them, but nothing seemed to work. That is until they decided to fight fire with fire, or rather feather with feather they hit upon the idea of having a living scarecrow, a scaregull, you know what I'm saying. They dressed the staffer in an eagle costume and set them off to chase the seagulls. It actually seems to work. It's great fun for the visitors to enjoy, but as the seagulls then, they're not in tune with it, they're not aware of it, it is something new. It is proving as a cue to, to move away. Now the zoo plans to make that solution permanent, hiring five people as the zoo's official seagull deterrence. It'll pay 10 pounds, 80 pence an hour. That's just under 14 U.S. dollars. What a great job to be outside um, in, in a zoological park with some amazing animals, meeting people and, and helping make their day better. Rebecca Reynolds says they already have 200 applicants, many of them from outside the UK. I am not one of them, but I support the effort. We've been inundated, overwhelmed with applications, with some very innovative um, application forms and CVs to go with it. I think we've had uh, vegetable costumes, fruit costumes, different kinds of animal costumes, just to prove that, that people are very willing to, to dress up and, and play the part. So if you've ever dreamt of flying like an eagle, or more specifically, running around in an eagle suit, flapping your wings, now's the time to take flight. The Blackpool Zoo is still accepting applications. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, there's a new obesity drug on the horizon. Eli Lilly says one of his diabetes treatments is effective for treating obesity and obesity-related conditions like sleep apnea. Find out the latest on that drug and obesity treatments in general tomorrow morning by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. After a series of negotiations, it appears a strike is likely for school bus drivers in Framingham, Marlboro, and Westboro starting tomorrow. The drivers are asking for fair wages, health care, and retirement benefits. A nonprofit in Worcester is suspending all its programs starting tomorrow. Girls Inc. of Worcester has placed its two top leaders on administrative leave as an external investigation is conducted into employee concerns over workplace equity issues. The organization is more than a century old. Its mission involves helping girls from lower-income families succeed. The Boston Symphony Orchestra hosts a free performance this afternoon at Symphony Hall. Concert for the City will star BSO music director Andres Nelsons and Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. The program features local composers and a special rendition of a Mozart concerto by Mayor Michelle Wu on piano. Sunny in Boston today, a high around 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at AECF.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yeah, it was a tough one, I think. It came from Joe Becker of Palo Alto, California. I said the zh sound, Z-H sound, can be spelled in many different ways in English, like the S in measure, like the G in beige, like the Z in azure, and like the J in maharaja, and even like the X, as some people say it, in luxury. And the question was, what is the only common English word in which the zh sound can be spelled with a T? And the answer is equation. Isn't that interesting? The only word ending T-I-O-N where we say je. Equation. 
Oh, I I I would not have gotten that. Um, but when you were saying the just sound, I was like, ah, let me sit this one out. But <laughs> <laughs> it seems like this week's challenge was tough. Out of five hundred correct submissions, Yossi Berkowitz of Beachville, Ohio, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, so how long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, I grew up with it, so I've been playing it for a lot longer than I've been old enough to submit the answers. And my parents (laughs) have been playing since the postcard days. Okay, so you're a little bit youngish. Do you mind if I say your age, or how old are you? I'm 20. 20? Oh, my goodness. So the puzzle is older than you. Yep. (laughs) That's true. Way older. I am so glad that you were able to to win and, like, you know, be a part of this. What do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? At Ohio State, I'm part of the Model UN team. I also rock climb. Oh, those are great things to do. And, Yossi, are you ready to play the puzzle? I sure am. (laughs) This will be much easier than a Model UN, I promise. So take it away, Will. All right, Yossi, this is going to be easier than rock climbing, too. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to give you some six-letter words. For each one, add the same letter of the alphabet twice without rearranging any of the other letters to make a common eight-letter word. For example, if I said sturdy, S-T-U-R-D-Y, and add two A's, you would say Saturday. Oh, okay, okay. So here we go. Number one is resent, R-E-S-E-N-T, and add two C's. Crescent. Crescent, you didn't need a hint. Number two is collie, as in the dog, C-O-L-L-I-E. Add two Ds. It's going to end in D. It's going to end in D. Maybe if you ran into something, it would be like that. Oh, collided. Collided, is it? Latish, L-A-T-I-S-H. It's in somewhat late, latish. And add two Fs. Flatfish. Flatfish, that was fast. Seated, S-E-A-T-E-D, and add two H's. Sheathed. Ooh, you got it, sheathed. Fester, F-E-S-T-E-R, add two I's. Feistier. Feistier. Assort, A-S-S-O-R-T, add two P's. Passport. Uh-huh. Wangle, W-A-N-G-L-E. Add two R's. Wrangler. Uh-huh. Mallet, M-A-L-L-E-T. Add two S's. And the S does not go in. There's no S goes at the end. Small set? Uh, oh, uh, small is right. Make it uh, the oh, superlative. Smallest. Smallest is it. Hedger, H-E-D-G-E-R, as in one who hedges. Hedger and add two A's. Headgear? Headgear, yes. Reared, R-E-A-R-E-D. Add two P's. Prepared? Uh-huh, and here's your last one. The answer is hyphenated, a hyphenated word. The word is treble, T-R-E-B-L-E. And add two U's. True blue? True blue, good job. You just took off. <laughs> you didn't need any help Like once you got going. So you did a great job. How do you feel? I feel good. This is on my bucket list. 
oh, great. And you've already done it at 20? Like, <laughs> oh, that, like you on top of the game right now. Okay. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And you'll see what member station do you listen to? I listen to WKSU, but when I'm at school, I listen to WOSU. That's Yossi Berkowitz of Beachville, Ohio. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Mike Isaac of Sunnyvale, California. Think of part of the human body whose name is a compound word like fingertip or toenail. Add an N and rearrange the result to get another part of the body whose name is also a compound word. What body parts are these? So again, part of the human body, it's a compound word. Add an N, rearrange the result to get another part of the human body whose name is a compound word. What body parts are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, May 11th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Will, would I be able to ask you a question? Sure, hit me. What's your favorite word? Oh, haha. Uh, my favorite word is ukalagon. Oh my gosh. That's spelled U C A L E G O N, ukalagon. It means a neighbor whose house is on fire. <laughs> I love that word because uh, it is so ridiculous. You would never imagine there's a word for that. It comes from Greek myth, uh, somebody whose house is on fire, and uh, his name was Ukalagon. So that word has come down into English. Have you used that in a sentence before? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've never had a neighbor whose house is on fire. I can imagine calling, you know, the fire department and say, hey, I have an Ucalagon. And they'll be like, and they go, what? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question, Yossi. I, I wouldn't have thought to ask that. That's a great question. Hannah Gatsby's new hour of stand-up comedy promises a departure from their previous outings, Nanette and Douglas. This one has romance. I have dragged you through a bit of my over the years, and you've stuck with me, much obliged, but it's time for some payoff. It's called Something Special, and Hannah Gatsby joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So you say in the show that you actually don't like romantic comedies. Neither do I. Why don't you like romantic comedies? There's many a reason, but one of the things I, I get really frustrated when I watch a romantic comedy is most of the conflicts are just silly little miscommunications. And I'm like, just talk, just ask a few more questions. You would have got to the bottom of that. This doesn't feel like you're wasting your own time. So I get caught up in that. It's an eternally frustrating experience, me watching. Like, I'm not allowed to watch romantic comedies with other people because they're like hushy gums, you know, like this is not, this is not for you. Why don't you like them? I don't like them because I, I don't really like love. <laughs> I'm joking. I like more like horror, people getting killed and stabbed and mysteries and- Wow, we're learning a lot about you here. So, do you know- <laughs> 
One of my favourite movies is Get Out. Yes. But I can't watch it. I've never seen it. I, I can't see it because I You've hate horror. Seen it? I feel so terrible. But I've read so much about it and I've seen clips and I'm like, this is a great movie. And I talk about it all the time to people and I'm like, I haven't actually seen it. Um, because I don't like the feelings. You know, I have to turn the sound down and all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, so to be serious, I do like love because I love that you announced in the special that you got married and your partner is actually, I mean, they can't, this is the radio, they can't see, but your partner is around you right now. Congratulations. Loitering. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're very much collaborators. Um, we met through work and um, Jenna is a producer and I just sort of said, well, how about you just focus on producing me and my life and my work and it's worked out well. So she's hearing you talk about your proposal and getting married. Like, was that pressure like to do that in front of people and in front of the person you're talking about? Well, because stories are what they are, the, the stories sort of began with us. Bringing it to the stage was very much a collaboration. I think a lot of the times, you know, comedians will, will tell a story about or, you know, make jokes about their partner. Um, and unless it's a really hostile, toxic relationship, I guess, often it is, I guess, but the partners are deeply involved in the, in the work of a, of a performer. You're always bouncing material off because you're sort of creating and always you, you, you're trying to find the humour in, in stories as they happen. So I certainly would not say anything on stage that, that Jenna felt uncomfortable about. Were you ever concerned about how the audience would respond? Because then it's like, it's so personal to you, although you obviously tell very personal stories. Yeah, it just, there's a different sort of, um, the risk is it's a lot harder to successfully write stand-up comedy about being happy than it is about being unhappy. Like, I feel like the, the art form is, is revolves around conflict and difficulty like that certainly the craft of it is much easier and also nobody really wants people to be happy at the moment particularly because nobody's you know we're, we're under duress at the moment it feels like so to just sort of swan on stage go i'm happy what's wrong with you seeing is, is actually really difficult but i think i did it you know i'm happy what's wrong with you you absolutely did it like i guess what made you say i want to give people a little bit of just a nice feel-good thing when other times it's been kind of deeper and darker. I believe strongly that stand-up can work on, on many levels. You know, I can make people feel bad at the same time as I can make them feel good. And this is what I, I've tried to do this. I wanted to, you know, particularly the live performance of it, and that translates into the filming of it, but the live experience of of it is, 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 is a warmth in the room. And that's, that's not what I did with Nanette or Douglas. You know, Douglas is a very cerebral show and, it, you know, it was it was written to agitate thinking. Nanette was very emotional. It was a, it was a sucker punch. And, and this show, I really wanted to create a warm experience. So um, the, the three shows, are meant, you know, can be seen in sequence and you can see someone coming out of trauma, wrestling with it and finding a, you know, a place of comfort and certainly not one that I thought was possible for me. So I think it's worth sort of trying to show a lighter hand. Absolutely. And, and so, um, I mean, you, you explain in the show, like the different ways people in your life tell stories, uh, your parents, your spouse, like what role do you think the way each person tells a story says something about them? 
Well, it's sort of what they focus on is what they believe is important. And that's always endlessly fascinating to me. And I, I come from a large family. I've come to realise, especially, you know, bringing uh, Geno into the fold, is that my, my family don't tell stories. They have rememberings. And so when you're having a remembering with people who experience, it's just stories devolve into just words that mean a whole lot more. So people on the outside are just like, I don't know why everyone is laughing. When a family tells a story, there is no facts. It's been a real joy to me to watch Jenna, who just loves a list of facts, like it's a list. And there are a few in my family who, who tell stories like that. But my mum is the heart and soul of our family. And so the way she tells a story is how lies for laughs and things like that. And I'm, I'm on the spectrum and <laughs> lying is difficult for me. So I always get caught up and like, that didn't happen like that. Like I'm annoying to storytellers, but I know the craft. In real life, I'm an, you know, I'm annoying. So does writing and performing stories about your life help you to make sense of them? Oh, absolutely. It sort of feels, but you know, there's a danger to it as well, because as you tell it and share it, that works as kind of a seal to how you remember something that happened. So that's why I'm incredibly careful about what I put on stage and how I talk about things, because it will eventually become the way you think and feel about things. And you can play with fire a little bit there and you know, I always said that I, I won't do self-deprecation anymore, but now I'm suddenly in a much better position in life and um, I have a lot more power than I ever, you know, had and I'm able to see, you know, the privilege that I've always had, you know, as the world's changing. I'm all of a sudden very keen to be self-deprecating, not for who I am, but for what I do. I think there's a, a, a neat line. Oh, well, you know, now that you've, I mean, obviously you've been out on the road and you've done the special and, and it's going to be released to the wider world. Like, wh what did you learn from this part of your life and sharing this part of your life? It was, it was really, like, I loved the tour. It was on stage. It was, and I'm so glad I decided to be a positive spin on life on stage because it was a horror show of a tour. Just before it started, I had to have a knee reconstruction and then I was just back on my two feet and I broke my leg, same leg, in several places. And so uh, for a lot of the tour, I was in a wheelchair. We are trying to navigate uh, accessibility, which if you wonder why there's not many disabled comedians performing, uh, that's why. It's literally incredibly difficult to get on stage. And that's not right. There was just this whole layer of life issue in the way. So in that, Jenny and I really were pushed to our limit as a as a, a creative team. But I, you know, I'm really proud of what, what we produced in the end. Hannah Gadsby's new stand-up show, Something Special, streams on Netflix starting May 9th. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for giving time to a little romantic comedy. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness.
From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, high around 80. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at ClarkLiving.com and UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.